first came to America in the early 60s, the 1960s. <laughs> Not only was that a previous century, it was a previous millennium. That's how old I am. It was a very interesting experience. I, I thought they spoke the same language here that I had been brought up speaking. I very soon discovered that was not the case. My very first encounter with Americans was in, in a restaurant in the Reed Hotel in Chattanooga, Tennessee, when a young waitress came up to me and said, Y'all have And I assumed that was a greeting, and so <laughs> I said, good morning. And she repeated, I said, you all have greats. And so I thought evidently in America they repeat greetings. <laughs> so I said, good morning. By this time, all the waitresses, there were three of them in this restaurant, gathered around me and in rather formidable unison, they shouted at me, you all have greats. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I'd never heard of grits. I didn't realize I was plural. <laughs> Y'all. And the little hat in between didn't mean a thing either. And so I realized I had a problem. So I said, it isn't that I don't hear you. I don't understand you. Do any of you perhaps speak German? Uh, <laughs> That was my initial encounter with America. Okay. Shortly thereafter, I began to be introduced to American culture. And a lady came up to me and said to me, on what appeared to be a very important day, because people all dressed up in red, white, and blue and eating watermelon and, and doing things like that, she said, Mr. Briscoe, do you have a 4th of July in England? Now you must realize, I learned my history in England where we have a, a, a bit longer history. And so we started further back. We never did get to 1776. <laughs> and so I thought it was a very odd question. So when I am asked an odd question, I feel an odd answer is appropriate. And so I said, no, madam, we go straight from the third to the fifth. <laughs> But I could see that this was a very important event for her. And so I made some inquiries and they started talking about a declaration of independence of which I was utterly ignorant. And so I did what you're supposed to do when you know how ignorant you are. You take steps to educate yourself. So I got a copy of this document, the Declaration of Independence. And I started to study it. I thought I'd better get to know this country. I was very pleased to see that it started out talking about the creator. And then it was very clear that the, whoever had written this, I discovered it was a gentleman called Jefferson, who incidentally had also rewritten the New Testament so that it was more to his liking. But that's by the way. It started out with the creator and the creator having some link with his creatures and that because the creator had some link with his creatures, he had invested them with certain what he called inalienable rights, which were self-evident. 
And so I started to check out what was self-evident and I started to ask why they were inalienable. And I discovered that the three of the rights that the creator had invested in his creatures were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It seemed to me that they were very admirable. I discovered the original draft didn't say the pursuit of happiness. It said the pursuit of possessions. But people have always confused possessions with happiness and regard them almost as synonymous. Anyway, that was very interesting. As time went on, And I was excited about being in America because I I had come out of wartime and post-war England. And the attitude in wartime and post-war England is we are battered, we're we're shattered. And we've been there and we've done that and just look what a mess this whole thing is. And it was a downer. And I came to America and there was a wonderful can-do spirit and I wanted to be part of that. That was more like my temperament. And I was intrigued with this thing, the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness, pursuit of happiness. But then something didn't seem quite right because the more I got to know individual people, the more they came and talked to me about how desperate they were to be happy, but how unhappy they were. I thought there was a disconnect here somewhere. There's something out out of sync. And I began to explore it and I came to a conclusion. I I came to one conclusion that it is one thing to be perfectly free to pursue happiness, but if you're not sure what you're pursuing, you may miss it. And then, of course, there's another possibility and that is that you may pursue it where it isn't. I spend a lot of time talking to people about happiness and how elusive it is and why it is so elusive and yet how much we long for it. I bet there's nobody here who woke up and said, my objective today is to be unhappy and to make as many people unhappy as possible, unless possibly they were junior high kids. They... (laughs) Sorry, kids, but (laughs) there is a great longing for happiness, but there's an elusiveness to this happiness. And I've come to a conclusion. I have come to the conclusion that basically happiness, which after all is basically an attitude, a feeling that things are good, that things are the way we want them to be. But I have concluded that there's a problem here because happiness is very much related to happenings. Now, if our happenings happen to happen the way we happen to want our happenings to happen, the result is happiness. But the reality is that very often our happenings don't happen to happen the way we happen to want our happenings to happen. And if our happiness is linked to our happenings and our happenings don't behave the way we want them to, guess what? Unhappiness is inevitable. People were spending an enormous amount of energy enormous amount of money very often, enormous amount of ingenuity, channeling it all into the search, the pursuit of happiness. 
But it was all about trying to organize their happenings so they would happen to happen the way they happened to want their happenings to happen and they wouldn't happen. And what could they do? Kind of stuck with unhappiness. I suppose the ideal picture was uh, portrayed for us in the old musical Oklahoma. Now some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But believe me, it's true. I would love to render one of the pieces from that for you, but render would be the right word. <laughs> so I'll just recite the words to you. Oh, what a wonderful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. Oklahoma happiness. That's the ideal that's the American dream. But very, very often, the reality is more like this. Oh, what a rotten morning. Oh, what a terrible day. I've got a nasty, low-down, sneaking suspicion. Nothing is going my way. Right? Hello? Is that right? Very, very often. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, Stuart, you're not usually this gloomy. Where have you been? <laughs> well, no, I'm not usually this gloomy, but here's the backdrop. Because the question that comes to my mind is this. You know, given the circumstances, the circumstances that are beyond our control and how much they affect our attitudes, you know, our happenings and happiness, that sort of thing, given where we live, and there's so much that is beyond us, out of our grasp, out of our control, are we damned, are we doomed to being fundamentally unhappy? Is that the best God had in mind for us? I don't believe so. There's something else that the scriptures talk about. Now, you know I'm going to get to the scriptures because I have a fundamental belief. If I didn't believe this, I wouldn't have quit banking. And by now, I would have been retired growing roses in a little whitewashed cottage on the south coast of England, looking for the sun. But I, I happen to believe that this is a record of God's self-revelation. Telling us about himself so that we will know him. So I read it. And I take it seriously. And I find that it is littered with references not to happiness but to joy. That's the difference. Let me give you an example. Right in the end of the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms there. You should spend time in Psalms. It was the original songbook. They're songs. You can put them to your own music if you like. And there are all kinds of moods in these songs. But towards the end, there's a group called the Hallel. And one of the Psalms in the Hallel has this fantastic statement. This is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. 
That's a very basic statement. Now, notice where it starts. It says absolutely nothing about circumstances. It says, here is a day, and this particular day has one overarching characteristic. The Lord made it. The Lord made it. And he has given it to me. And I have the incredible privilege of being the recipient of the gift of a day from the Lord himself. This is the day that the Lord has made. That is an intelligent conviction at which you've arrived. You've put your brain into gear and it has responded to God's self-revelation. This is the day that the Lord has made. Then where do you go with that? I therefore will rejoice. I will rejoice. Not, maybe I should rejoice. Or this is the day that the Lord has made. If he'd consulted with me, I'd have told him how to improve on it. (laughs) No, this is the day that the Lord has made. That being the case, based on that fundamental statement, I choose today to enjoy who he is in the day that he has given to me as a gift. I choose to do it. That is an act of the will. So my mind is engaged and my will is engaged on the basis of what I now know. And the result is this. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will what? Be miserable in it. No. I will rejoice. That's emotional. And you look at your humanity and guess what? Your humanity is all about your mind and your emotions and your will being in sync. And when they're in sync, your life begins to change and it is manifested in your body. And you become an increasingly whole person. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. And be glad in it. Here's a little sidelight on this. The Hallel is the passage of scripture that was used by the Jewish people in the Passover celebration. And as they had their Passover meals, they would sing together. And they would sing the Hallel. On the day of the Last Supper, which coincided, although it wasn't a coincidence, with the Passover. You know, what I'm talking about, the the last supper Jesus had with the disciples immediately before his crucifixion, it says that after they had gathered together, they sang a hymn and then departed to the cross. If they sang the Hallel, that day Jesus on his way to the cross said, this is the day that the Lord has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. And the New Testament author picks up on that incredible thought and he says this, Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Tell me about his circumstances that day. Tell me about his happenings that day. Was his happiness related to his happenings? Or did he know something about joy because he was relating himself not to his circumstances but to one who transcended these things? 
You see the difference? It's the difference between happiness and joy. Now, we need to go a step further on this. We can't just talk about joy. That's rather amorphous. Joy needs to be rooted in something. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says this. It's right at the end of the verse. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's not just joy. It is joy related to the Lord. So what it means is this. That instead of your life being governed by your happenings to determine whether you're happy or unhappy, your life is now focused on the Lord and what he is doing. Okay? If your happiness is dependent on your happenings, the more you focus on your happenings and try to organize your happenings, the more of a roller coaster you're going to have. If you have a different orientation entirely and your focus is on the Lord and what he is doing, then you're going to discover something that is not akin to happiness, it's called joy. So you may actually be able to say something as weird as this. Oh, what a terrible morning. Oh, what an awful day. I've got a nasty, low-down, sneaking suspicion. Nothing is going my way. And I'm so joyful in the Lord because I know it's the day that he gave me and I know who he is in it and I have got an inkling as to what he is doing. See the difference? We're talking joy here, sisters and brothers, not happiness. Now I want to look a little further into this because you take a text out of its context, you're left with a con. So let's read it in its context. Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, that that is referring to the fact that the Israelites are being kicked out of the promised land. They have lived in exile for about 70 years. And now through a remarkable set of circumstances, a group of them have been allowed to return with explicit orders to rebuild the temple to the Lord. The reason for this was that they had been kicked out of the promised land by the Babylonians, but the Babylonians had been kicked out by the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians had an entirely different foreign policy. Their foreign policy was not to dominate the places that they had overrun, but was to cooperate with them and get the people on their side. So it was more of a meeting of minds than a butting of heads. The Babylonians, their foreign policy was a constant butting of heads. The Medes and Persians, it was more a meeting of minds. And so Cyrus, the head guy there, whom God had predicted would come to this position, had told them to go back and to rebuild the temple. Okay, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. 
So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand, presumably kids. He read it aloud. I love this. It's such an encouragement to preachers who go on a bit. <laughs> he read it aloud from when? Daybreak till noon. <laughs> That's what you call a marathon preach. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right hand stood a group of very nice men with unpronounceable names. <laughs> Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Now notice something very important here. He hasn't started reading it yet. This is all preparatory. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Preparation to hearing the reading and the teaching of the Word of God requires an attitude of focus on the Lord and adoration of Him that leads to prayer that concludes with the people collectively saying, Amen, Amen. I agree. That's where we start. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is interesting. They've been standing, raising their hands, celebrating. And then they are bowing down with their faces to the ground. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you'll find worship and bow down inextricably bound up in each other. Come, let us bow down and worship. Worship is not just adoration and celebration. Worship is also prostration. When it says with faces to the ground, it meant foreheads in the dust. They prostrated themselves. And so before they even start the reading and the preaching of God's word, guess what had happened? Their hearts were in tune. They want to hear from the Lord. Why? They want to hear from the Lord because they look at where they are and it is a disaster on every hand. The economy is shattered. One of their prophets puts it this way, very graphic. Some of you might relate to this. He said, you earn money and you put it in bags with holes in. <laughs> Guess what? Oh, oh here's, my, here's, my, here's my day's wages. All right, here's the little bag I keep it in. Put it in. Yes, now, now go home to my wife. Open the bag. It's gone. Where did it go? That's the picture of their economy. Their marriages were a disaster. People were getting into a fight with their spouses, divorcing them and shacking up with somebody else. All over the place. Not only that, 
as far as their security was concerned, they had been there a hundred years and they still hadn't built walls and they lived in the most volatile place on earth. Where's that? Well, have you been reading the news lately? The Middle East. What had happened in the Middle East? Well, the Assyrians had risen to power and they had created chaos, but the Babylonians had come along and clobbered the Assyrians. And they had created chaos and the Egyptians had got in the mix and they'd created chaos. But then the Medes and the Persians had come along and they'd handled the Egyptians and they'd handled the Babylonians and they were doing okay. And now on the horizon looms Alexander and the Great and the Greeks and behind them waiting his turn is Mark Anthony and the Romans. This is the Middle East and stuck right in the middle of it is little Israel and stuck right in the middle of little Israel is Jerusalem and stuck right in the middle of Jerusalem is the temple, the place where God is going to meet with his people and it's utterly defenseless after a hundred years. And they've got themselves totally wrapped up in building nice houses, but they haven't dealt with the spiritual issues. And as far as spiritual issues were concerned, they were going through the motions, but they were empty motions. They would do all the prescribed sacrifices, but the prescribed sacrifices were that they should bring a yearling lamb, a lamb one year old, a male that they should have bred it specifically and checked it so that there was no flaw in it at all. It was a perfect, costly sacrifice of what they were doing. They were bringing mangy, blind, lame old sheep that were pastured and very piously they were offering it to the Lord. And the Lord said, I can't tolerate your worship. This was the mess they were in. For 13 years, Ezra had been quietly teaching them. But it had taken 13 years for the message eventually to get through. Eventually they got the idea that we don't have an economic problem here. We don't have a security problem here. We don't have a social problem here. We have an incredible spiritual problem here. And if we've got an incredible spiritual problem here, We've got to be looking for some spiritual answers. And if we've got to look for some spiritual answers, we'd better look where we're going to find them in the book. Bring the book. And that's what the people did. And as Ezra continued reading, we're very intrigued to know what he was reading. And he was reading from the book of the law. He's reading from the book of the law. Now that can mean different things. Sometimes when we read of the law in the Old Testament, it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. I used to think, oh, he's read, he read the Ten Commandments. And I thought, boy, that must have been boring, reading the Ten Commandments from daybreak till noon. And I realized, no, no, that wasn't what he was doing. Actually, what he was doing was reading from the book of the law, which can also mean the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy. That's what he was reading. Can you believe it? All the men and all the women and the kids standing there listening. Wow. They'd forgotten. They didn't know a lot of them. And those who did know had forgotten. And now they said, bring the book. We've got a spiritual problem. Let's hear from the Lord. What was he reading? 
Well, what he was reading was the grand narrative of God. The grand narrative of God revealing himself. The grand narrative of God revealing himself in his dealings with his people. Get that? That's the key to understanding the Old Testament. It is the narrative of God revealing himself in his dealings with his people. That's what he shows us what he's like. And where does it start? Well, it starts with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where you start. If you're going to read the book of the law, that's where you start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, there are some people who believe that. There are some people who say, no, we were not intentionally created by an intelligent God for an intelligent purpose. We are simply the chance accident that comes about through the collision of molecules. There's nothing intentional about it. There's nothing intelligent about it. We just happened, all right? So you have your option here. You either believe that you are an intelligent person created by an intelligent God intentionally, and that becomes your focus, or you believe I'm just an accident suspended between accidents, lurching from one set of circumstances to the other that I try to control and can't. You take your pick. The people are listening. The kids are listening. Wow. Creation. Then they read on. They've discovered about creation, that what God actually did was create this wonderful universe and he declared everything very good. And he put at the pinnacle of his universe humanity. Humanity that had a unique affinity with God. The Bible uses the term man was made, or humanity was made in the image of God. And that was in order that they might relate to God uniquely. And they needed to relate to God uniquely because God was going to make them stewards and overseers of the whole of the created order. That's why Christians of all people should be green. And they were not only to be stewards of the created order, but they were to discover its riches and unearth them and use them to the glory of God and the benefit of humanity. And you know what? That was how it all started out and that was the way it was supposed to be. But then humanity did a stupid thing. Humanity decided they didn't want God to be God, they preferred to be God themselves. Does that sound familiar? And so they started to do it their way. Like Frank Sinatra, they could all sing, I did it my way. And the result is what we call the fall. And what you see all around and what you see in Israel as they've returned and have been back in the land a hundred years and they've got a disaster on every hand. Wherever they look, you see the fall. And as you look around America today and as you look around Europe today and you look in the Middle East today, you'll see the fall wherever you look. You've just got to make sure you understand what you're seeing. And so the grand narrative is all about creation and fall and then redemption. That's God not sitting with his arms akimbo in heaven, saying, well, they asked for it. They've got it. 
It is God saying, that's my world and I want it back. And he's intervening in the person of his relations with the people of Israel that will come to fruition in the sending of their Messiah, Jesus. And in him, all the nations of the world will be blessed because it will all end up this redemptive process in a new heaven and a new earth characterized by righteousness, which means he'll put the whole rotten mess to rights, ultimately, finally, irrevocably, and eternally. Glory, creation, fall, redemption, glory. Stop looking at your circumstances. Stop trying to manipulate your happenings so you can be happy and get your eyes on who God is and what He is doing. And then learn to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Of course, the big question that would come to their minds over and over again was, who is this Lord? Who is this God? And that's the question Moses asked one day, who, what's your name, God? And he said, I am that I am. He said, I beg your pardon? I am that I am. Well, what, what, what does that mean? Well, just cut it down a bit and say, I am. That's my name. I am. Odd name. Incidentally, he goes on to say, I will be known as the Lord your God. The word Lord is a translation of Yahweh. Yahweh is related to the verb to be. All right, this is not a grammar lesson, but just think for a minute. Can you see the connection between the verb to be and the statement I am? Of course you can. How does God want to be known? He wants to be known as the Lord the one who is, the one who is the I am. Now, if I were to talk about a human being, we'd have to say, I was, I am, I will be. If I talk about God, I just say, I am. For he lives outside of time and space. He transcends circumstance and happenings. He overarches all things from eternity to eternity. The word is transcendent. And he is the one who before the creation of the world had everything in place of what he intended to do and bring about ultimate glory through the gift of his son. And you focus on him, you say, oh, wow. There is a transcendent Lord. There is one who lives outside circumstance. And what he tells me to do is to focus on him, not on my happenings. In other words, the joy of the Lord is my strength means enjoy who the Lord is and what he is doing and you'll discover that to be a source of unspeakable strength. Actually, the word is stronghold. <laughs> In an utterly defenseless Jerusalem with a pitiful little wall around it that didn't stand a chance against the mighty forces that were always rolling over poor little Israel. What they wanted was a stronghold, a place of stability, a place of security, a place of well-being in the midst of chaos. 
And Ezra says, I'll tell you where to find it. It's not in manipulating your happenings. It's in focusing on the great I am and what he is doing and just enjoying him. Doesn't mean that your circumstances will suddenly be fixed. That's what we usually ask for. Oh, God, fix my circumstances. God says, no, but I will fix your attitude. And when God fixes your attitude, you trade in happiness for joy. And that's what we talk about when we open the book of the law. Pray with me. O Lord our God, the great I am, the one who transcends time and space and circumstance. We know how easy it is to become absorbed by our circumstances that we long to control by our happenings which we have an insatiable desire to manipulate. And it doesn't happen so often. And what a joy it is to know that you are in control, that we can know you through your written word, which we study assiduously, and through the living word, our Lord Jesus, whom we get to know through this book. Lord, Lead us in the way of righteousness. Give us a desire so that we're constantly saying, bring us the book and show us Jesus. And as we do, help us to enjoy what we're discovering. And therein discover our stronghold in uncertain days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.